We're in Acts chapter 16, moving right along. We are going to spend the next, well, three weeks after this in chapters 16 and 17, ending our study through the book of Acts, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, in uh, the end of June. At that point, we're going to launch into a, a series about 12 sermons long, looking at the life of Moses during parts of Exodus, and hopefully pointing each message to the gospel, and how God raised up Moses, not only to lead God's people out of Egypt, but as a, as a prefiguring, as a, as a type of Christ who will come and, and, and deliver us from sin, death, and hell, as, as Moses points to something greater than just delivery from Egypt, pointing to the great deliverer and redeemer. Jesus is the better and greater Moses, who stands before his people not as a mediator to give them the law, but as a mediator who fulfills the law and then dies for our sins, mediating in the new covenant. So we're just going to look at Moses' life and see from a historical perspective, but then launch into what that means for us in the gospel. So I'm getting excited about that. But uh, meanwhile, the next couple of weeks, we're in Acts chapter 16. So turn there with me. Paul is now has a new missionary partner. His name is Silas, and he begins his second missionary journey. Acts chapter 16, verse 1, following through 15. We probably won't get that far, but chapter 16 of Acts. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there. His name was Timothy. Or for some of you, Timothy. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that video. It's funny. But anyway, uh, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. Verse 4. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decision that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of uh, Phrygia, Phrygia, they say that, Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they came to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. A lot of Inias here, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come on over to Macedonia and help us. When Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go on to or go on to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Verse eleven. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony. We remained in that city some days. May God add a blessing to the reading of His Word this morning. So. Before we launch into this and we look at this second missionary journey, I just want to take a five-minute journey, sidestep from the text, and talk to you just a minute, for some of you who are new here, about what we believe the Bible says about mission. The church of which Jesus is the head, he is the chief shepherd, Jesus is the senior pastor, is all about the mission, the missio dei in Latin, the mission of God. The mission comes from or derived from the very nature of who God is. God is a missionary God who seeks and pursues sinners. His work is one of restoration, renewal, reconciliation, and redemption. He is working to, uh, to, to restore his creation to complete shalom, to wholeness, renewal. This mission began back in the fall with Adam. And now God's people in Christ are God's partners. We, we come alongside God to, to partner with him on his mission, in his purpose. The, the missio Dei, the mission of God is the, the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit, sending us on mission. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. There's a sentness about the church of Christ. There's a sentness about the missio Dei. It's about being sent. 
The foundation and primary focus of this church and every Christian, I believe, is the common mission of taking up the gospel of, of redemption to the world, first in our home, then, our, and then outside our home, into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces, our co-workers, our people that we go to school with, uh, and then, of course, to the greater degree to the ends of the earth. In fact, the mission of God, the Missio Dei, is found really in the entire Bible as God on his missionary work His purpose to reach the lost for his glory. He made himself known to Israel for that purpose. He called them to the mission. They were not to just live separate lives. They were to to declare the glory of God. They were to show forth the God of Israel, the one true and living God. Even in the incarnation, we see the call of mission. Mission work is the work of God. The mission of God does not start in the gospel according to Matthew chapter 28. Some people think that's where the church got its orders. Well, that's true, but it's not true. It's not like God decided in Matthew 28 before Jesus' ascension to send us on mission. He's been on mission since Abraham's call in Genesis 12, since Genesis 3 when he promised to send the Messiah, chapter 15. And the book of Acts now is picking up the continued work of God after the the coming of that promised Redeemer. So Israel, in a sense, was looking forward, declaring the glory of Christ about the coming Redeemer. We as a church are looking back to the cross as we look forward in declaring the promise of Jesus Christ. God's been on mission. Acts is picking up the story, the the entire story, the, the grand narrative of the Bible. In Jesus Christ, we see the glory of Christ. Last week, a little, Paul and Barnabas got into a heated discussion. But it did not stop Paul and Barnabas for living on mission. Making disciples, declaring the good news, loving people, pointing to Jesus, talking about Jesus, gospelizing about Jesus. They're on mission. And I will say, boldly, confidently, a church who is not on mission, does not have sentness at its core, is not really a New Testament church. We see this sentness, we see this mission throughout the scripture, declaring and demonstrating the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what you see that from the closing verses of chapter 15, verse 40. It says, But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and they went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. They got their decision from Jerusalem, and what are they going to do? They're going to go back on mission. Not about sitting around. It's about being on mission. It's about being on mission. And in chapter 16, what we find is Paul and Silas on their second mission journey. Some people call to live on mission right where you are. Some people call to pick up the stuff and start going. But either way, we're on mission. The Missio Dei is the nature of God. It's part of who he is, seeking and saving lost sinners. And we see Paul and Silas picking that up. And they're out making disciples. They're out encouraging disciples. And in chapter 16, we get to their second missionary journey. And what I want to do is I want to see this text under three headings. The first one is the circumstance in Lystra. And what we'll see is what, what, what's really the background issue of what's going on in this missionary journey. We'll look at the circumstance in Elystra. We'll look at the call at Troas to Peter, excuse me, Paul gets the call to go to Macedonia. And then I thought, well, since we're doing seas, we'll take a cruise to Macedonia. I don't think they were on like the Royal Caribbean or anything, but they did leave land because they walked until they got to Troas. And now they get on a ship and cross over to Macedonia. We'll deal with most of that next week um, as, as the Bible, as, as Paul goes into um, Europe. Very, very, very important change and, and, and uh, mission trip. So let's look at first the circumstance in Lystra. 16.1. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman, who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Okay, so follow. Paul and Silas, perhaps a few other people, leave Antioch heading north, and then he'll head west, this time on foot, through the Cilician gates into the region of Syria and Sicilia, westward, northward and then westward, and, and they come to the place 
uh, Lystra and Derby. Now, this is really important. I want you to, to see this. You can't really see that all that well. Um, because this journey and the route that they take has a lot to do with the context of, the, of this passage. So, whoop. what you find here is Antioch. Let me see if this next picture might be a little better. Yeah, can you see that a little better? Okay. So, here's Jerusalem. Here's Antioch. They go down to Jerusalem, get the word of what's going on in Acts 15. Then they go back up to Antioch. Paul and Barnabas get into a heated debate, and they say, you know, you go your way, I'm going my way. Barnabas goes to Cyprus right here. Oh, no, excuse me, right there. And then Paul heads out towards Cilicia. And, okay, Pamphylia, Sister, you see it right there, Anconium, Derby, uh, Lystra. See, he's going. He goes north, then he goes this way. But I, what I want you to see is that Paul continues westward and ends up in Troas. That's really important. You'll see in a minute. But this is the direction that they're headed in. Down here is emphasis. He hits that on the way back. But he's on his way, and he's going westward. North, then west, and then a little bit again north. Okay? So remember that. See that chart? Because that's going to be important as we move forward with the text. Because God's going to direct them at this point where, where to go. Okay? Now, if you remember, so Paul's at Lystra. And if you remember, the first time Paul's at Lystra, he gets beaten until an inch of his life. Right? He's almost dead, means he's slightly alive, and he's dragged out of the city. He gets up, he dusts himself off, and goes back into the city. So what you have here is him going back to Lystra a third time. Now, I will tell you, it takes courage, like Holy Spirit unction, to go back into a city that beat you up three, you know, three times going back into that city, declaring the gospel. But now he's going back. And I want you to know that here in Lystra, who does he meet? Timothy. Timothy. Timothy would become a, a friend, a comrade, a fellow soldier of Paul. Paul writes two letters to Timothy in our Bible, first and second Timothy. In fact, in his first letter it says, To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we know from our text that Timothy is Jewish, but we also know, and I think Paul is alluding to is that although he became a, he's a believer now when he gets to Lystra, I think Paul, during his proclamation of the gospel, the first time at Lystra, I believe Timothy came to faith. That's why he calls him a true child in the faith. In other words, Paul was his spiritual father. And, and, and he's looking at Timothy, knowing that he responded to the gospel on his first trip, and he calls him my true son in the faith. Now, I said this last week, there's a certain camaraderie of that is built among men and women who go through difficult trials and hardships together. We said Barnabas and Paul were like that, but I think Timothy and Paul, in a similar way, had a deep devotion and loyalty to one another. Although there was a father and son relationship, there was a loyalty that grew among them. Listen to what Paul said in Timothy, uh, excuse me, in the Philippian church about Timothy. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, but that not of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with the father, he has served with me in the gospel. Paul says, listen, Timothy's unique. He's not like everybody else. We are like-minded. Yes, we have different gifts. We have different traits. But there's something unique about Timothy. We, we, we think along the same lines. Timothy had concern for people. Paul had a concern for people. A deep love for others. And I could tell you, as a pastor, when you're involved in ministry together, you want to be involved with someone who loves people. Who loves people. Timothy not only looked out for others, but Timmy looked out for the interests of Jesus Christ. That's what it says. As important it is to love and care about others, if it does not flow from the gospel, it will not ultimately be helpful nor sustainable. Maybe Timothy watched Paul get beat up, dragged out, and go back in and think, wow, man, you know, that takes courage. He must be really devoted to Jesus Christ to go back into the city and declare the gospel to other people. He must love people and love Jesus. Maybe that was an encouragement to Timothy. I don't know. Verse 22 of our text says that he worked well. He was a father and son. There was a team. You know, some people just want to do their own thing their own way. 
right? I mean, they even may do it well, but don't try to come along and help them. They'll be like growling at you. Like, I'm just trying to help, right? But, the, but not Timothy. Timothy worked well with others. He wasn't a lone ranger. We also know in 2 Timothy, just giving you a little portrait, that he comes from a godly home. 2 Timothy says that Timothy learned the Holy Scripture from Lois, his mother, and Eunice, excuse me, yeah, his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. Both of them taught Timothy as a child the Scripture. But what's important I want you to see is not only this camaraderie with Timothy and Paul, but what the text says about about him, because it's really important what, what Luke puts in here. It says in our text, verse 2, that he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra, right? It's, it, it's important to have, to, 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 to have a good reputation among the brothers. Like, he's a faithful man. He's a godly man. He, he, he loves people. He loves Jesus, right? Brothers and sisters saying, that's the kind of guy that I want in ministry. Verse 3, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, you need to know that according to the Mishnah, which is the oral traditions of the ancient rabbis, a child who was born with a Jewish mother and a Greek father was considered to be Jewish. In fact, many times those marriages were, were non-legal. They, they didn't even... They didn't even recognize them here obviously they do and i don't know why but they do but according to the jewish law if you had a greek father and a a hebrew mother you were considered jewish so what's a nice jewish boy like timothy doing not being circumcised according to the law of moses as as a sign of the covenantal people that's a real problem They face a real issue here in the church. The problem, though, has to do with method of ministry rather than theology, right? Method, not theology. So so Paul had Timothy circumcised. Remember, the practice in that day for Paul was to go to the cities and go straight to the synagogues. That's where the scriptures were read. That's where the gospel was declared. That's where, uh, you know, people met and talked about scripture and and teaching like coming here you're going to hear about jesus when you come to king's chapel if you go to a church and they don't mention the name jesus and they don't open the bibles get in your car drive away and never go back right so they're there you're in the synagogue and to have a jewish boy uncircumcised would have obstructed paul's effectiveness among jewish people if paul was to minister the gospel to the jews in the synagogues timothy had to be circumcised. Now, quite honestly, I don't know how they would know he wasn't. (laughs) Did they they check you on the way in? I don't know, but (laughs) at this point, Paul's like, we can't take any risks. You might have to use the bathroom and things may go downhill. I don't know. Now, we know that Paul did not circumcise Timothy because he said you need to follow the Mosaic law. You need to follow certain rituals and rules in order to be a Christian. I mean, they were carrying the decision of the church in Jerusalem that said you do not need to come through the law. You do not need to be a Jew in order to be a Christian. You do not need to follow rituals. You need Jesus by faith alone through Christ alone. So it can't be for that reason. So why did Paul insist that Timothy be circumcised? Again, because when he came, when it came to the effectiveness of the gospel, Paul was very open to different methods. But when it came to the essential truth claims of the gospel, he would not budge an inch. So out of respect for the customs, the prospective evangelistic audience, His response was to render moot any debate over Timothy's lineage. This act prevents Timothy from becoming an issue. When when minor things become the major things, when an issue becomes something that we're trying to get around, that's not what we really want to talk to. We want to talk about Jesus, but this is in the way. He's like, we need to take care of this. Dr. Tim Keller writes, when the conscience is freed from self-justification by the gospel, it makes us very culturally flexible. 
We must firmly contend for the gospel, but it is that very gospel that makes us pliant and open about most everything else. Turn to 1 Corinthians 9. Paul is wrote a letter Paul wrote a letter to to the Corinth church 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 19 He's talking about his right to preach the gospel he's talking about his authority he's talking about um um Preaching the gospel for free is really the context and, and, and just being able to move about declaring the good news. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, he says, For though I am free from all, I have my, made myself a servant to all. Paul is saying, I'm free in Christ. I have my preferences. I know what I want. I have my freedoms. I have my cultural expressions of my faith. And, and I could do what I want to do, but I won't. Why? For the sake of the gospel. I become a servant of all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, although not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Paul says, guess what, my fellow Jew? I act like a Jew so that I can win you to Christ. You know, if you take away the phrase to win them, you got legalism, but Paul's making his aim very, very clear. It's not to be liked by you. It's not to be, you know, hated by you. It's not to be respected by you. It's not even identify you in a sense of, of, of look how good we are. He says, my aim is for the spreading of the gospel. That's why I want to identify you, to win you to Christ. But there are limits. Paul was free to adapt only when it was clear that doing so would not confuse people. I think Paul spent a lot of time, if you look at Galatians, you see here, he wanted to make it clear, I'm sure that conversation with Timothy and those around him was like, this ain't got nothing to do with you becoming a Christian, but they're never going to let us in. And you know what? Their salvation is important. The gospel being preached in that congregation, in that context, is really important. So we need to do what we need to do to get in. So therefore, I, I, I'm not going to have, you know, unnecessary cultural and, and communicational barriers. I'm, I'm moving forward. And that's what we see here in our text. Same thing that Paul wrote out in, in 1 Corinthians, which happened a few years later. Paul takes him and circumcises him because he wants the gospel to go forward. He was willing to submit Timothy, half Jew, to, to, to circumcision so that he can get in. Do you know that Paul in chapter 18, I believe it is, of Acts, actually takes a Nazarite vow. Why? For the gospel. He would do what was necessary for the gospel. But do you know in Galatians chapter 2, he refused to circumcise Titus? Why? Different circumstance. The Jews in Galatians 2 saw circumcision as, a right to, as, as part of being made right with God, about following the laws to be made right, to be justified, to be made right with God. And Paul's like, we're not having that. It's by faith alone. And Galatians says, even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ, so that they might bring us into slavery to them, to them, to the religious fanatics who refuse to come to God by grace to them who believe it's about what you do and how good you are and your moral record that makes you right with God. To them, he says, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. You see, it all depends what is at stake. You see, for Timothy, it was hearing the gospel was at stake. We need to do what we need to do. But for Titus, it was the reception of the gospel that was at stake. I'm not buying it, he says. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, Paul continues to write. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might what? Win those outside the law. Paul is not saying that he will live lawlessly for the sake of the lawless. He is not saying that he will become that dude wearing his you know, underwear outside his pants, drunk just to, to reach the drunks. 
That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I will step outside my comfort zone. I will, I will uh, curve my cultural expressions for the aim of preaching Christ. That's what he's saying. Paul's willingness to accommodate himself to diversity of social and cultural circumstances was not the separatist approach, be like me, and it wasn't this syncretistic approach, like I'll just join in anything you do. He had that balance. This is the sort of gospel-centered, self-denying exercise of liberty that Paul wants to see among the Corinthians and that he's exercising here in Lystra. It's a balance. It's to know. You you, you cross those cultural barriers for the sake of connecting people to the gospel. He didn't say, come and join me, do everything I do, and he didn't say, I'm going to jump into the culture that's sinful and, and do things so that I could just say, I'm joining you on it. He wasn't going into that, but yet he still loved people. I, whenever I, I think of this, I think of John 4. Do you remember that story, Jesus? He goes into Samaria and speaks to a woman, which is taboo in that culture. He knows the culture. He ascends above that culture. And what does he give to her? Himself. And they're like, are you talking to her? He's like, yes, she needs to know about me. She needs to know about me. He understood the culture, but he gave himself. May it never be that we become a church, whether cultural or or racial indifferences keep us from declaring the gospel, loving others and telling other people about Jesus. Your neighbors, your friends, your co-workers may have vast differences, but God loves them. And God has placed you in their life for you to... uh, to, to, to share intentionally and demonstrate intentionally the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't become sexual immoral to win the sexual immoral, but he did love and share with that woman at the well. Jesus did not go to Zacchaeus, who was a cheat, and said, you know what, come down from that tree, let's go steal something together <laughs> so that I could tell you about Jesus. He knew he was a cheat. He didn't become a cheater to meet the need of the cheater. He said, come today, be at your house today. That's what he said. And you say, well, you know what? If we really start loving people and talking with people and loving people, somebody might look at us kind of funny. Why are you talking to them? Why are you going to lunch with them? Why are you doing that? Really? Hmm. You know what the Pharisees and the legalists said about Jesus? The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of a tax collector and sinners. Was he? No. Did they say that about him? Yes. Paul knew what to do. It's hard sometimes. I I, I understand that. I, I understand that sometimes it's difficult to understand how far you go. But I know this. If you love people and you love Jesus and you have your feet planted in the gospel, and your heart set against sin, you'll be fine. You take the step of faith, you'll be fine. And you know what? You'll be able to rejoice. You'll be able to rejoice. Verse 4. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decision that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Every decision Paul made was centered and oriented around winning people to faith. Knowing when principles are worth standing up for and which ideas and and methods are are not. or When to elevate something of great importance and whether just to say, you know what, that's just the way we do things here. It takes leadership. It takes discernment. It takes understanding the gospel. Sometimes blowing up traditions for the cause of the gospel is good and right. And necessary. It takes wisdom to know. It takes wisdom to know. All right, let's look at the call. Verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Spirit, to, the Holy Spirit, to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, verse 8. Passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. You know, 
one of the things that takes time, and I, I think all of you would agree with me, one of the things that takes time and wisdom is to figure out where am I supposed to be, Lord? Where am I supposed to go? Lord, what am I supposed to do? What is it that you want me to do? Where are my responsibilities? What is it that I need to do? And Lord, what is it that only you can do? Sometimes we take the place and we want to act like God. And sometimes we want to be passive and not stand up and take responsibility. You know, I realize that we're in an ever-increasing culture of entitlements. The more others do, be it government, family, schools, the less likely someone's going to do for themselves. I, I get that. But I think as we, as Christians, probably fall on the other side. Right? Don't you think? Like, we expect people to do for themselves rather than rely on other people. Be Americans. Hard work. Get you places. Study hard. Get a good job. Right? If something's broken, fix it. If the school board's not doing the right thing, remove them. If the government's not spurring the economy on enough, get someone who can do it. Let's get our minds together. We're Americans. We could fix this. Right? And some of that, I think, is healthy and it's good. You, you know, you come up with good ideas, you have good strategy plans, uh, you work hard and you, and, you, and you do well. I get that. But I think, though, that we have to be cautious because the tendency then is to forget that the air we breathe, the strength we have, the, the, the brain we use is a gift from God. And our dependency upon God seems to decrease and our go-get-it attitude seems to increase. That happens to me as well. There has to be that sense of dependency on God. I think that's why we have prayerlessness in the church. Because we could do this. We could fix this. Put our heads together. Let's get it right. This passage and another passage next week will see clearly that God is teaching them, and I think God is teaching us and showing us that it is his work that there are things that only he can do. It is the work of the triune God, particularly in the midst of Paul's work in the ministry, directing and guiding and leading Paul. Here we see in chapter uh, uh, 16, verse 6, that they tried to go through Phrygia and Galatia, but the Holy Spirit said, nope, not that way. So what you see is they were going west. They wanted to go south into emphasis, maybe that coastal plain. And the Spirit of God said, nope, you're not doing that. And they kept going west. Verse 7 says they came to Mysia. They attempted to go into Bithynia, which was north. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So after they decided to go and visit the churches they planted, they headed northwest Tried to go south, tried to go north, but just kept going west. You have the Holy Spirit saying no. You have Jesus saying no. And in verse 10, if you look at that, Paul gets a vision, and he concludes that God the Father has called us to go to Macedonia and to preach the gospel. The work of the triune God directing Paul and Silas. Now, pastor, uh, out of some of you, some of the older folks who've been around a while, know Ray Stedman, he's a pastor and expositor, passed away now from Florida. He, he points out a couple of things that we could take from the text that shows us how God leads us today. So I'm, I'm going to share that with you. How does God lead us? How does God's sovereign will become known to us? People ask me that all the time. From our text in chapter 15, actually, starting in chapter 15, I want to pick out seven things that you could write down if you want. You can talk about them in community group. How God leads, directs his sovereign plan, his sovereign will in our lives. Number one, community. Do you remember back in Jerusalem Council, the whole church got together. The pastor, the elders, they threw the issue out on the table and they began to debate it. Sometimes decisions are hammered out in your life in your family, when you gather with other Christians. It's amazing to me. People have been walking with Jesus, walking with one another for years, and make major decisions in their life without talking with others. Brothers and sisters, you have blind spots that you don't see. That's why they're called blind spots. So you don't see them, but other people see them. So before you go and make a dumb, stupid decision, 
talk to people and give them permission. Tell me the truth. Really? Yeah. All right. You better sit down. What are you thinking? What do you mean? Well, this is what I see. They bang things together. Okay? Number two. Versus community. Number two. People are guided by the word of God. When 15, in Acts chapter 15, the, the apostles and the elders got together and they said, this is what we see, this is what we need to do. And what does James do? He stands up and says, this is what the scripture says. He quotes Amos. He, he talks about the other prophets. So reading your Bible regularly and consistently will teach you and show you the character of God and make your decision much easier through the word. Number three, men took what was decided, chapter 15, verse 30, and they began to share it with people. They began to read the the letter and Paul and Barnabas were teaching and preaching and sharing the word of God, verse 35 of chapter 15 with one another. So, Men took what was written and explained it. We call that Bible teaching. We call that expository preaching, explaining its meaning. Be under the word of God, being taught. God will show himself to you. Number four, common sense. Common sense in fulfilling the mission. Paul and Barnabas, it doesn't say that that they got this vision back in chapter 15 anyway, that we need to go strengthen the churches. They were just following what Jesus said in Matthew 28. Make disciples baptize them teach them what i've taught you so go and do it you know some people are waiting for that aha moment oh that's exactly the ministry and the person and the work that sometimes you know what it's just find christians encourage them strengthen them read scripture together talk together live life together disciple one another it's common sense in matthew 28 number six excuse me number five god reveals his will through differences Some of you may be right now wrestling through a decision and there's a lot of frustration. It could be God is saying, I'm trying to show you something like he does with me and you're so hard-headed, I'm waiting for you to run out of steam. You're all riled up, (laughs) you know, when when you're done with all that, I'll, I'll show you. And sometimes it's through debate. Paul and Silas, excuse me, Paul and Barnabas had a huge debate. It was time God used that to show them to go their separate ways. Paul was willing to hold firmly principles and methods. Sometimes, folks, let me tell you, sometimes it's about keeping the main thing the main thing. One of the ways to get sidetracked from the will of God in your life, I will tell you, is making major things minor things and making minor things major things. You'll miss it. You'll miss it. Paul's like, you know what? I'm keeping the major to major. All that other stuff will work through it, but right now I'm on mission. God will reveal himself when you do that, number six. Number seven. Oh, no, let let me tell you. One of the things I think that people get sidetracked as well, and I just want to say this in passing, is sometimes we stop what we're doing when when, when the call is to keep moving. And God will, will clarify. God will show you. God will redirect you. You know, you could sit in a car, you could turn the steering wheel, but unless you're moving, you're really not going anywhere. Right? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's good to pray. It's good to wait on the Lord if that's what God wants you to do. But sometimes it's just to continue doing what you know you should be doing. Men who are actively serving the Lord. Remember, Paul is moving. Paul is moving. Paul is moving. You see that. It's not like he's got a plane. So he's walking across major, uh, Asia Minor. But he's, he's moving. He's doing something. He's, he's, and God will re- redirect you. All right? God will redirect you if you keep moving. And he goes all the way to Troas. So he's moving, he's moving, he's moving. And he gets to that place. And then finally God shows him. Now, we don't know. Luke doesn't really say how exactly did he show them to go to Troas. It doesn't really say how the Lord had forbidden him, had the Spirit forbidden him. Maybe it was frustration. Maybe, a, you know, maybe they were, it was an inner witness. Maybe it was an audible voice or maybe a circumstances that, that just kept lining up that they just could not figure out. Maybe they went to go rent their camel where they usually go and they're like, sorry, we have no camels left. They're like, oh, how are we going to get out of here? You know, they're calling the 1-800 line. There's no cars, there's no camels, there's no horses. Or maybe every horse they took, you know, stepped outside the stall and just, you know, got sick or something. I don't know. But God does lead us 
sometimes to the right opportunities by hindering us from wrong ones. Right? Through community, through his word, through exposition, Bible teaching, through common sense, fulfilling Matthew 28, through our differences, through keeping the main thing the main thing. And then finally, and the last point here is through remarkable and miraculous ways. Look at the next text. The cruise to Macedonia, verse 9. It says in verse 9, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. There we remained in that city for some days. Now, could it be that Paul gets to Macedonia, takes that cruise, and then goes, oh, I, I didn't see it. I mean, all the time was going on, the camels I couldn't get, and, the, and everybody getting sick, and we couldn't, I get it now. God was changing and moving, and, and I, we were just being directed by the sovereign hand of God to Troas so that we can hear and see the vision of God. Sometimes it's that way, isn't it? You look back and you go, oh, I didn't see that. I, I didn't see that coming. It's one of those aha moments at that point going, I know why I was so frustrated all this time. God was sending to me to Macedonia and he had to bring me to the coast of Troas so that then he can reveal his plan to me, a vision. And I will tell you, in the book of Acts, what you have is some visions and dreams in the books. No one's ever seeking for them. I just wanted to say that. Paul, excuse me, Peter did not go up to the rooftop in chapter, I think it's chapter, uh, what are we in, chapter five or six, whatever it is, you guys remember, and go, Lord, I don't get this whole thing about Jew and Gentile. Show me a sheet with some animals on it, kill them, tell me to eat, and I'll get it. That's not what happened. Paul's not going, come on, guys, let's just keep moving until God gives me a vision. Paul's like, let's just keep moving. And then when he was ready, God showed him a vision. Now, can God use a vision today to lead and guide you? I will say the answer is yes. Are there crazy wackos who see all kinds of visions whenever they're eating their Cheerios? Yes. One of the craziest ones I've ever seen is Benny Hinn. October 99, the Lord said to him in a vision, tell everyone to bring, ready for this? Tell everyone all over the world that God's going to start raising people from the dead so everyone put your caskets in front of the television. Nah, that never happened and uh, unfortunately you know, funeral homes are still in business. But then we have people like Bill Bright, who's a, who's a godly man, who says that it was through a vision that God spoke to him about Campus Crusades for Christ. So can it happen? Sure. Should we be careful? Absolutely. In fact, you, you don't know the Dooleys. Hopefully they'll be here soon, one of our global partners. Um, he was in seminary. He was in Dallas, and, and God gave him a vision to go to North Africa. As clear as day. And he's been serving there 15 years, I think. So can it happen? Yes. Do you need to be careful? Absolutely. In fact, if you look at the text, look at verse 10. It says, we concluded. That word concluded is very important. Underline it in your Bible. All right? It signifies something going together. It, it, it has to do with making decisions together, a joining together, a knitting together. What this would suggest to me, I think, is that they gathered together and they said, all right, Paul, what'd you see? Mm -hmm. All right, let me see. Let me feel your head. That long trip across the desert, man, it's pretty hot. You feeling okay? Yeah, I'm, I'm feeling good. But what about that pizza we stopped at that place on the way through? You got indigestion? No, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. You sure that? Like, let's talk about this. It's not like God just showed me. You know, <laughs> he wants you to marry me or he wants you to give me your house. You're like, no, I didn't see that vision. I don't think that's of God, <laughs> right? So they, that word concluding means, and if you look there, all the, all the verbs there is they and we and us. It, they want to know, is this a true spirit? Was this the Holy Spirit? Was this an evil spirit? Was this rational? Is this something that God is showing us? Let's talk about it in community again. So we should not quench what the Spirit is saying, but that don't mean we believe every spirit either. In fact, uh, in verse 10, it says we, Luke is joining them on the trip now. 
Many commentators point out this is where Luke joins them on the trip. So does God have a plan for your life? Yes. Does God have a specific plan for you who you should marry, where you should work? Yes. Does that mean you'll find out ahead of time? Not usually. Not usually. He doesn't usually show us way in advance, right? We look back and we go, ah, I get it now. I I see what has happened. In fact, I met my wife that way. Somebody said, hey, you got to call this young girl. She's a Christian. She loves Jesus. I'm thinking, I don't really know. I call her. She doesn't answer my phone call. She's really not interested. He said, call her again. I'm like, I really don't want to. Like, just call her again. So I do, and she answered the phone by accident. If she knew it was me, she probably wouldn't answer the phone, but she did. I remember back in the early 90s, I was with Perry Jones, and we were uh, uh, actually looking at church planners for the church. And uh, I've always had a desire to learn the Bible, but I couldn't drop everything I was doing and go to seminary, and I was involved in corrections, and I just, I want to learn more of the Scripture. And I remember Perry just saying, hey, you know what? They're starting a new undergrad program at uh, Mid-America Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm like, what? Three and a half years later. I, got, I joined up that day. I think it was, I got home that, that next Monday. That was Sunday. Monday, I signed up. And I'm grateful for that. And we look back and we go, ah, okay, okay. That's the way it happens a lot of times. Someone once said, you know what? Make your plans in pencil and then get God the eraser. Right? Here's my plans, here's the eraser. Some of you say, no, 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 you shouldn't even make plans. Well, that's not what Paul is doing. Paul's moving. Paul's headed out. Paul's on mission. Paul's going. He wants to go south. The Lord said, no, he wants to go north. He doesn't just go, okay. He keeps moving. And sometimes we've got to make plans and give God the eraser. Are we willing to let God erase and direct us? Proverbs 16, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Paul's plans, we can all say amen, were good plans. He wanted to share the gospel. He wanted to, to bring the decision to other churches. He wanted to strengthen others. I mean, that's good desire. That's, that's a good plan. But it wasn't what God wanted. So what does that teach us? We learn this. One, sometimes when God guides us, be ready, he might say no. And he might say no for a while. He has not abandoned you. You cannot see the big picture. I know you think you're God, but you're not. And you can't see the future. But God does. Sometimes says no. Sometimes guidance is not done passively. It's, it's received through wrestling and, and working through evidence and making choices and moving on. Sometimes guidance is corporate. It, it, it's a team effort. Pray, talk brothers, talk among one another. Families and community groups, share what's going on in your life. Let people know. Let people speak into your life. And you know what? Sometimes guidance is gradual. You know, by the time Paul got to Troas, he crossed the whole Asia Minor until he finally got there. Now, you may not know exact plans and purposes God has for you to say. Maybe there's something you're wrestling with. I don't know. You have a huge decision, but you're really not sure. But this I will tell you. Jesus was 12 years old, and he was left in Jerusalem by Mary and Joseph. And, they're like, and, and Mary said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have searched for you in great distress. And Jesus said, Why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? We may not know the future, and we may not know the perfect will of God, but Jesus Christ, since he was a boy, knew perfectly what his plans and purposes was to go to the cross for your sins and die in your place and be raised three days later so that you can be made right with Christ. No guessing, no uncertainty, no vision necessary, no closed doors needed. Over and over in John's gospel, Jesus says, my hour has not come, my hour has not come, my hour has not come. Jesus was determined, steadfast, and resolute to accomplish the work that his father gave him to do. And finally, he says, the hour has come. Let the Son of God be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Final hour. The work of Christ on the cross. The final hour. His death, burial, and resurrection. So, although you may not know, I want you to know this for certain. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. He did the work. He completed the work. 
he finalized the work. His purposes and his plans were steadfast from birth to cross to resurrection for you. And when you know that and when you trust that, you can walk in uncertainty because you know God's love, God's grace, and God's mercy is upon you because of Christ, of the work of Jesus, his steadfast and his commitment and his determination to die in your place and for your sins. Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time come, God sent forth his son. When that time finally came, the perfect time finally came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, under the law, to redeem those, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons and daughters. And because you're a son, God has put the spirit of his son, spirit of Jesus, we just read about that, into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then a heir through God. So as we go to communion, are there decisions? Is there things in your life right now that you won't submit to God? Are there plans and purposes in your life? Are you walking in a direction that you know it's rebellious? It's not what God has for you. You're not listening. You're not waiting. You want to do what you want to do. I'm going to call you to repentance. That means to turn. It means to stop. It means to right now say, God, I'm doing my own thing. I'm going my own way. I'm not listening to what you have to say to me. And right now I repent from that because your will, clearly seen in Jesus Christ, is what's best for me. Some of you are there and you need to repent from that. Some of you maybe have never come to faith in Christ and recognize that this world, you're spinning around, you're spinning your wheels. You're not really sure where you're going, what you're doing. I'm going to tell you that Jesus Christ had a perfect plan and a perfect purpose and a perfect determination and that was because he loved you and he died for you and he rose for you. And today's the first day you're going to take communion and you're going to trust Jesus, love Jesus, treasure Jesus, run to Jesus, have your sins forgiven by Jesus. This table represents the body that was broken. The bread represents his body broken for you, the cup, the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. The band's going to play. We're going to sing. The band's going to play also and we're going to repent of sin, call the whole church repentance. If you're above repentance, you have nothing to repent from, just ask the one next to you about your sin this week. They'll be more than happy to tell you. We all have sin to repent from, including me. So let's repent of sin. Let's stop trying to run our own way, go on our own thing. Let's listen to what God is leading us. And let's not sit still and let just the mission go on without us. Let's join God in the mission because he's seeking and saving the lost. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the way in which you love your people, you care for your people, you provide for your people. Thank you for the way in which you lead your people. Lord, I know sometimes we are stubborn and hard-hearted and hard-headed people who don't hear your voice, we don't see your lead. Father, we want to be humble people, broken people, repentant people. So, Lord, that we may hear your voice, we may follow your lead, we may walk with you, Lord. And, and, And no matter where or what decisions that need to be made in the future, Lord, we pray that you would guide our steps Walk with us so that we would not miss your will for our lives. And sometimes, Lord, I know it's, it's a look back. But Lord, we pray that as we do, we will see your sovereign, providential hand in our life. So, Father, as we go to communion, we pray that you would grant us repentance to faith. Lord, we pray that as a church, we will seek your face and live on mission. May we never, never, ever be prejudiced and may we never, ever be self-righteous. Lord, we know that we come by grace and grace alone. And Lord, we pray uh, that we would be quick to respond in love to others. Reaching out, maybe, in, maybe being in uncomfortable at times, not sinning, but reaching out, touching lives, loving people, and pointing them to Jesus. May we never stop being your people on mission. And we ask all this in Jesus' good name. Amen.